already it's very clear that uh, he wants out. He wants out of school and he wants out of Bristol. Otherwise, why is he going to all these music hall acts and making friends and getting a job at the music hall so that he can make friends with the acts and learn how this business works? You know, so that's actually what intrigued me. The chrysalis of Archie Leach was already uh, starting to become Cary Grant. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of movie land comes... Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. The greatest movie star of all time? Maybe. We talked to Scott Eyman about his new biography of Cary Grant. And we talked to horror and Halloween aficionado David J. Skull about Fright Favorites, a new book designed to create well-rounded horror buffs. As I've created this episode, and now I know what it feels like to play pod. Um, and if you could, subscribe to your favorite podcast app, and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, would you? Thanks. Don't tell me you've forsaken your beloved whiskey and whiskies. No, 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 no. I just changed their color, that's all. I'm going for the pale pastel shades now. They're more becoming to me. How about you, Mr. Connor? You drink, don't you? Alcohol, I mean. Oh, a little. A, li- a little? And you a writer? I thought all writers drank to excess and beat their wives. You know, one time I think I secretly wanted to be a writer. I'm afraid I'm not quite as anxious as I might be for the things that most people work towards. I don't want too much money. Too much money? Well, more than I need to live by. You see, it's always been my idea to make a few thousands early in the game and then quit for as long as they last and try to find out who I am and what goes on and what about it. Now, when I'm young and feel good all the time. Well, I'm sure Julia understands what I'm getting at, don't you, Julia? I'm not sure I do, Johnny. It's sort of wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fellow lose all faith in himself. Gives him a... Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. Nonsense. You've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever, till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words mumbled over you by a judge. You see, I arranged it this way. A certain note on the piano was wired to a revolver concealed in the wall paneling. Then, when the victim struck this note, well, there you are. Well, I don't care much for that. You're slipping, old girl. What's wrong with it, my dear chap? That's too complicated. If you're going to kill somebody, do it simply. The wine cellar is the obvious place to look. Alex has the key to that. Then get it from him. Get it? Yes, how? Don't you live near him? What do I look for if I get the key? You look for a bottle of wine, like the one that rattled the fellow at dinner that night. All the bottles look alike to me. I'm no mastermind. You're doing all right. Don't tell me where we're going. Surprise me. You know, I left some friends back there in the oak bar. They're going to think I'm awfully rude. I mean, 
Couldn't we stop off at a drugstore for a moment so that I could explain I'm being uh, kidnapped? Well, that is what's happening, isn't it? He is, I think, the greatest movie star of all time. The one who most defined the image of the glamorous human being 20 feet tall on a screen that we all might aspire to be. Scott Iman's new biography of Cary Grant is subtitled A Brilliant Disguise, and that hints at the story it has to tell of the man who wasn't Cary Grant, but invented him all the same. Scott Iman has written perceptively and knowledgeably about other Hollywood icons, from DeMille to John Wayne to Henry Fonda and Jimmy Stewart, who we spoke with him about in 2018. I started by asking him why he chose Cary Grant this time. Oh, well, I'm basically interested in people that transcend their period uh, because I see no point in writing a book about Anne Dvorak. I, <laughs> it, it, it just, it's just it's a prejudice I have. Uh, and and there are, frankly, a limited number of people that transcend their period in my point of view, you right. know, uh, because most movie stars are locked in their period. That's just the way it is, because most movie stars are like fashions. They come and they go and they don't last. Uh, for whatever reason. I mean, there are some wonderful actors that really don't get thought of much as wonderful actors. I always thought Gable was an underrated actor, frankly, but I don't think anybody is particularly interested in a big book about Clark Gable anymore because I think I think his his uh, his cocksure demeanor is probably works would work against him with the modern audience. Yeah. Uh, but that's a personal prejudice. I mean, I would like to write a book about I'd love to read a book about a good book right. about Clark Gable. <laughs> You know, I don't know if I want to write one, but I'd love to read one. Uh, but, you know, if you look at if you look at my roster of books, they're almost all uh, about people that transcend their period. Uh, it's with the possible exception of Mary Pickford. Uh, and they keep trying to get, you know, Mary, you know, uh, relatable to a mod to 21st century. And it's not going to happen because there's something intrinsically weird about a 30 year old woman playing a 12 year old girl. <laughs> Uh, and they pretend that's not the case, but it is the case. Uh, so, and I mean, Cary Grant transcends his era in the same way that John Wayne transcends his era. Well, in a different way, but similarly in that they're not limited to, to, uh, uh 80 year old people who saw the movies originally, you know, right. uh, which is what I'm interested in, uh, because that's a, it's a limited number of a limited roster of people. Uh, and the answer and the question is why them? What about them uh, appeals to more than uh, uh, their, their core audience that grew up with them, you know, and saw them when they were 12 years old and formed that allegiance that all fans have with a given movie star? That's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned Wayne because I've always said it interesting. Uh, you know, Wayne said, I'm not John Wayne, but I've been studying him all my life. Right. And Cary Grant says basically the same thing in your book. More he or says, less, yeah. it's a part that I've been playing for a long time, but in no way am I really Cary Grant. Right, right. Wayne was more comfortable with who he was as a person than Cary Grant was because the person John Wayne played was closer to Duke Morrison uh, than Archie Leach was to Cary Grant. Although I think it's interesting, I think he underestimates how much he was Cary Grant uh, at times. But but yeah, oh, no, sure, you're... sure. That's I mean you, that's part of it. it. It's not it's not that he was a one eighty uh, from who he was as a person. It it was he was an aspirational figure. Cary Grant was an aspirational figure for Archie Leach, just as he was for the audience, basically. 
and he was always very open about that. I mean, there I found dozens of quotes where he, you know, variations on everybody wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be Cary Grant. Right. He he didn't pretend that he was that person because nobody's that that smooth, nobody's that in control, nobody's that calm when faced with a biplane bearing down at you in the middle of <laughs> Kansas. You know, uh, <laughs> uh, but 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 he he. Uh, 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 that's part of his charm is, is that within his limitations, uh, he was extremely honest about all that, about the fact that he was playing a part and it was, a uh, it was a part that he constructed incrementally over a period of years. And when he figured it out, finally, when it came to full fruition in the late 30s, 1930s, he deviated from it rarely, but they're all interesting deviations when he did. And the, and that the opportunities had to the opportunities they had to deviate from it are also interesting uh, in that he, he, he chose to refuse those possibilities. Yeah. The, the one that I'm now obsessed with is Cary Grant as Harry Lyme. You know, oh yeah. He would have been great. You know, I, do, I don't want to give up Orson Welles, but I, I would love to see that. It's just a short hop from, uh, from the, uh, the FBI guy in notorious to Harry Lyme, really. The coldness, the coldness. Yeah, Di- dialing up bastard from about seven to eight. Then mm-hmm. maybe no nine, maybe <laughs> no nine. nine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Let's let's go back to his beginnings then and talk about that. I mean, you relate him to Charlie Chaplin in terms of the same sort of upbringing and really, you know, as, as unlikely as it seems, so the same sort of training in a lot of ways, which is the music halls, the music hall. And he, you know, he was an acrobat and he was all these things before it sort of dawned on people. Oh, also he's just incredibly handsome. And mm-hmm. so they gave him other opportunities, but yeah, let's, let's talk about his beginnings in Bristol. Well, yeah, he, he, there were some similarities to, similarities to Chaplin that his mother was emotionally compromised on, on, on a severe level. His father was a hopeless alcoholic, uh, and he was basically on his own. Now, he was never uh, 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 indigent in the sense that Chaplin was indigent, and he was never in the workhouse uh, like Chaplin was. And he never you know, uh, uh, was homeless, essentially, as Chaplin was. Uh, but he was what he was, and this is clear in his diary, which is actually what convinced me to write the book. He kept a diary for uh, four or five months when he was 14 years old, the same year he got himself kicked out of school. The same year he got himself apprenticed to uh, uh, the Bob Pender acrobatic troupe. Uh, but what's very clear in the diary for the months of January, February, March, and some of April when he basically gets bored with it is that he was on his own. And what's also clear is he's not really going to school very often. He's, yeah. he's cutting school incessantly to go to the movies or to catch a matinee at the music hall. And if he's really lucky, a matinee and an evening show at a different theater so he could get two, two shows uh, uh, in one day. Uh, that he was clearly obsessed uh, not with uh, what society or his father or anybody else expected of him, but what was interesting interesting him was what was interesting him, and he was defining already defining himself uh, on those terms. Uh, the very few fourteen year old kids uh, uh, have that have the uh, uh, the free will to to be as as much of a lone wolf as he was. I mean, there's no mention of his mother whatsoever. Because uh, he thought she was dead at this point. There's a, one or two glancing mentions of his father, but nothing in any detail. It's all about uh, it's all about uh, the music hall and what movies he's seeing, and uh, what he thought of the acts. He's a street kid. He's a street kid with a roof over his head and food on the table. But other than that, 
he's on his own and he likes it that way. Uh, and I thought, well, now that's interesting because very few 14 year olds are that self-possessed and have that much a sense of, of who they are and what they're going to do. Uh, and already it's very clear that uh, he wants out, he wants out of school and he wants out of Bristol. Otherwise, why is he going to all these music hall acts and making friends and getting a job at the music hall so that he can make friends with the acts and learn how this business works? You know, so that's actually what intrigued me uh, in that he was he was uh, what's the word? The chrysalis of Archie Leach <laughs> was already uh, uh, starting to become Cary Grant on some level. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that he's. He's very early someone who is seeing himself in terms of, I could be like this movie star or that movie star. He loves Bronco Billy Anderson as a kid. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. He winds up meeting Douglas Fairbanks. You know, and of course, he not only adopts things from him like the year-round tan, but yeah. he becomes good friends with his son. Sure. Uh, lifelong he, friends. Lifelong, lifelong friends. Friend. Yeah. Um, and there's other other cases where he sort of attaches himself to people who, you know, respond well to this good-looking, charming young man. Mm -hmm. um, and he's kind of studying them a little bit, maybe. He's, and absorbing he's taking a, he's take, he's like a chef putting together a dish. He's taking a pinch, a pinch from this person and a pinch from that person. And he's constructing a personality incrementally, an alternate personality that he could play. You know, a uh, 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 no coward sense of elegance. Douglas Fairbanks is tan and sense of, I guess, noblesse oblige would be a good word uh, because they both had that. Uh, in Fairbanks's case, it was more authentic than it was in Grant's case, you know, because he, he was very uneasy uh, as Archie Leach, he was perfectly at ease as Cary Grant. And he could turn Cary on and off at, at will, you know, uh, which is why he was very successful socially, because people expected to find Cary Grant, and that's who he presented himself as socially in Hollywood at parties and, and this thing and that thing. It was only when you got him alone uh, with a few, a, a, some a few of his friends, he only had a few intimate friends, or, or his wives, they're the ones who saw the, the conflict between Archie and Carrie. It's surprising. I was surprised how well you could document his music hall career. Mm -hmm. uh, so was I. I was Because <laughs> he's nobody a, at that that's point. A function, that's a function of my researcher, Will Coates, who did extraordinary work, extraordinary work. Yeah, and he just leaves these traces through the trade papers and other sure. things of the time. Sure. It's, see, uh, that, that fascinated me. That whole period fascinated me. Uh, to, read the to read his reviews, you know, and to realize that he's just another struggling vaudevillian uh, who had no particular claim on the audience's attention. And that he wasn't like just this radiant, uh, fully formed character uh, who, who, you know, birthed. And by the time he's 21, he's this huge Internet. He wasn't Orson Welles, in other words. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it took him it took him a long time to become what he became. Yeah, to invent this character. And it really, right. I mean, I would, I think you say this too, that it's not really till the late 30s that he truly right. has it all, all together. Right. He's actually, he's pretty uncomfortable in his early films and he doesn't know what to do. It's not, not amateurish in the sense of he doesn't know what to do with his hands. He seems uncom reasonably comfortable in front of the camera, but he doesn't project anything. He's like, a, he's like an eight by 10 glossy. You know, he's just there filling up space in the frame. Wait a minute, I'll handle this. You, what can you do? Well, you see, Mrs. Strong, uh, I happen to be president of the Amalgamated Dairies. The reason I was driving my truck, I can explain by saying that 
I make it a point every so often to check every phase of my business. And yesterday, unfortunately, it was driving a truck. Right. He falls uh, into it fairly easily because he's so gorgeous. Oh, yeah. But absolutely. there's much better. He's much more. He's much more beautiful than most of the actresses he's working with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's breathtakingly handsome. And that really is what got him in the door, I think, of the movie business. I mean, all you had to do is look at the stills and think, well, if he can talk, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <this laughs> you know, guy. we can we can use this guy. You know, yeah. But he's not he's not a natural by any means. He's yeah. a learned artist, not a natural. artist. He's kind of a prop for both Mae West and Marlena Dietrich at that. point. Sure, sure. And Sternberg isn't interested in any of the men playing opposite Dietrich anyway. Stern, you know, they're 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 like a, a pillar that the Dietrich is supposed to lean against, <laughs> <laughs> but they're in, essentially inanimate. Yeah. Now, a really interesting thing I think about this time too is he invents the transatlantic accent as much as anybody. Right. right. And what's interesting is people always talk about, well, yeah, you can hear the Cockney in him, except no, he you, wasn't Cockney. He wasn't Cockney. He did Cockney all the time. Yeah. He does a little. He does some Cockney in None But the Lonely Heart, but it's not, actually not. A, I don't think it's a terribly good Cockney. Uh, no, his accent is completely made up. Uh, because the Bristol accent is a working class accent, as I say in the book, and I, I go to some detail. It's, it's an example of his radical self-invention because he understood, especially growing out of England, and he's not thinking about Hollywood at this point. He's just thinking about how do I go ahead in, in the music hall and in uh, maybe the West End, if God is willing. Uh, but he, he realizes that with a working class Bristol accent, he's doomed I, it, because there's just no way he can get any will get any work as a, as a speaking actor in England. Uh, with a working class accent. So we had to come up with something alternate. And, and in the same way that Chaplin obviously had a Cockney accent at one point, uh, because how could he not? He grew up in Lambeth. But when we hear Chaplin talking, what we hear is a very cultured, almost Oxfordian accent. Clearly, at some point, Chaplin realized he had to get rid of the Cockney accent, probably when he came to America, and maybe a Keystone or SNA. But uh, he got rid of his accent uh, because in, if you're going to be an actor in England, you absolutely have to be conscious of how you talk. Uh, and Grant came up with this mid-Atlantic accent, which is my friend Peter Heap, who's a native of Bristol, says most Englishmen wouldn't consider that an English accent, Cary Grant's accent. It's something else. It's a little bit of, of, of the Cockney that he picked up from the other kids in the Bob Bender, Bob Bender troupe. Uh, because that was his only knowledge of Cockney. He didn't hang around Lambeth uh, as a young man. Uh, he, he hung around with kids who had come from Lambeth and were in the troupe, the acrobatic troupe that he was in. So it was a secondhand accent that he picked up. And then he combined that with, you know, trying to get that uh, uh, classless accent that all the actors in the West End had. Uh, and, and, and out came, you know, the Cary Grant accent. Well, it's, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally original construct. Yeah. Well, and that's what's interesting. You say Englishmen wouldn't consider it English, yet right. Americans had no trouble considering it American. He plays Americans right. all the time. Sure. And no American talked like that exactly. But then no, no, no American particularly talked like Catherine Hepburn either. So. Well, in that era, in that era though, people didn't travel. They didn't really have a good grasp of 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 uh, localized accents. So when Cary Grant's playing uh, in uh, Topper. Or opposite Hepburn and bringing up baby, and he seems to be playing an American. Maybe they just figured he went to Yale, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because they never actually no. Very few people outside New Haven met anybody who'd gone to Yale. Yeah, 
or if you were maybe working at the loose publication, then you would have met a lot of people who went to Yale. Yeah. But, <laughs> but other than that, you know, people in, people in Montana didn't know from, uh, accents. So they, they, t- they took him as a, a kind of universal educated man because he's his, his, his enunciation's beautiful. Uh, and he's, it's, it's not an American accent they're used to. So he was kind of stateless in a sense, which worked to his advantage. Yeah, no, I think that it's a big part of his his stardom is that he you you can't type him as any one thing. Right, 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 exactly. Which is wonderful for an actor. That's the ideal state for an actor. Well, let's talk about his development. Yeah, in, in the mid '30s, um, you talk about. I mean, there's some some woeful films that he made, or he got woeful. Oh, it's parts amazing! It's amazing! It's amazing! He kept working. <laughs> Not that he's awful. He's he's rarely awful, uh, but the films are almost comprehensively terrible. Yeah. Uh, for the first, I don't know, three four years of his career, he's really got terrible headwinds, and it's not his fault. They're just, but Paramount sticks with him. They obviously thought he had something. They just couldn't figure out what it was. And they, what they real, the real problem was they couldn't figure out how to showcase him. They try, he, they gave him Frederick March's cast offs. They gave him Gary Cooper's cast offs. They gave him Clive Brooks cast offs. I mean, he couldn't catch a break because they had, he didn't really present a personality of his own at that point. Now, when you talk about that, uh, I, I, ordered as soon as I read about it because it sounds so interesting plus it's Ronald mm-hmm. Walsh is Big Brown Eyes that's a charmer I like that movie wait a minute will you honey oh, I wish you were a man same to you give me Beekman 3 0005 that's a newspaper clever detective now what's starting to work for him in that one uh, the rhythm he's, he's finding a rhythm in that, uh, and also Walsh is a good director for him because Walsh in that period moves fast. Yeah. You know, he, he's, 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 he's on his toes. Walsh made those movies on his toes in the thirties and into the forties. It's not until the fifties that he gets paralyzed. The Walsh movies in the thirties and forties tended to hustle, you know, and that turns out to be Grant's natural rhythm, uh, as a comedian, you know, in a, in a lighter vein, uh, just pick up the pace, keep it moving, uh, and keep him moving. He's more interesting. He's one of those actors who's actually more interesting in motion than he is in his close-ups, I think. His close-ups are stunning and all that, but I like Cary Grant best in medium shots and reacting to other actors and reacting to the moment in a movie because that brings his body into play. And uh, uh, he's so nimble and so seductive physically, you know, in a way that most actors aren't. Because most actors are always worried about what do I do with my hands, you know? <laughs> Get, am I playing with my glasses or a glass or a cigarette? You know, especially in the period we're talking about, the 30s and the 40s, where everybody's smoking because it gives them something to do with their hands. Or they're drinking because it gives them something to do with their hands. It's rare that you see Grant doing much with those conventional props like glasses or, or cigarettes. Even though he, he did smoke at that point, he quit later on in the late 40s. Because I think his hands being free worked to his advantage in, in a sense of finding his rhythm and gesture and things. Because he thought, I think he thought in terms of beats of rhythm in the moment. He is very mm-hmm. physical. Like you say, I mean, if you think of other vaguely comparable actors of that time, you don't think of Leslie Howard being physical, Ronald Coleman being physical in quite I don't want way. to see Leslie Howard being physical. Yeah. That would be, that's <laughs> a horrifying prospect to me. And Ronald Coleman could, you know, lumbered across a room and 
Ronald Coleman is about his close-ups and the voice. Yeah. You know, that's what sells him. He had beautiful eyes. He had the most beautiful eyes of any leading man in Hollywood. Uh, and he, of course, he had that gorgeous voice. But like most actors with a great voice, the voice is about 70% of the performance. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. they know they have a beautiful voice and they rely upon the beautiful voice. Like Orson Welles relied on his voice. Uh, or Richard Burton relied on his voice. Richard Burton gave more th- uh, uh, performances from the shoulders up than any actor I can think of. <laughs> You know, and you, if you look at his body, he's flabby. He yeah. doesn't really do anything from the neck down because he knew he had that magnificent voice and that became his crutch as an actor. Uh, and Grant, I don't think, had that kind of confidence in his voice. He had the confidence in his body. That's where his confidence lay. In a sense, he reminds me of Burt Lancaster, yeah. who also is a, was a trained acrobat and who also had enormous confidence in his body and in his ability to be convincing with his body. And I think you see a lot of that same. Uh, now Lancaster is fully formed quicker than Grant was because his timing was better, because uh, he came along just at the point when the studio system is beginning to collapse, and he could make independent deals for himself and do loan outs from his work contract with Hal Wallace. But a lot of his of Lancaster's success derives from his physicality, which derives from his absolute control of his body. Right. And in that sense, even though their personalities as actors are completely different. Uh, I, he always, I think he and Grant were kind of on the same page. So the movie that seems to kind of represent the beginning of classic Cary Grant, ironically, is a flop, which is Sylvia Scarlet. Sure. But he sure. seems to tap in finally to kind of the fully formed Cary mm-hmm. Grant at that mm-hmm. point. Because he's a rogue. He's playing a rogue. And he's playing someone with class consciousness. And Grant was intensely class conscious because of his early poverty as he, how could he not be? And the fact that uh, there was no money. Uh, and he was finally able to utilize aspects of who he actually was in a performance, as opposed to having enact, to enact something that he actually had no knowledge of or sympathy with. Here I am now, what? Can't we shut this little affair like gentlemen? You're a spy, a Judas, the lowest of the low. You've got some sense, can't you? Shut him up while I explain to you. Explain? I was taken away and searched. Take toi, Baba, take toi. And then the Hawks films that come after that seem to me to be where he really develops um, both because he gets to play flat-out comedy in mm-hmm. things like uh, Bringing Up Baby. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also a quote. You say this right at the beginning. He played every emotion except self-pity with a touch of acerbity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of what you see develop in those films is there's a way in which he's sort of watching the the events of the movie with us and kind of like mm-hmm. giving us an eye. It's like, can you believe this? Watch what I'm about to do. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, I think I'd say at one point he's in the movie, but he's also kind of slightly outside the movie watching the movie along with us. His eyes, his, yeah, his, eye, his eyebrows tend to be cocked at what fools these mortals be. Kind of <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's so, a tough trick to pull off. That's a tough trick to pull off. Because if, you, if you're not absolutely tone it, catch the tone right, it seems like you're patronizing your own work. 
Right. And he never does that. He never does that. Yeah. No, it's funny. It made me think a little of Oliver Hardy, you know, who could pull off the the most like stare straight at the audience thing. Grant mm-hmm. isn't doing it to that level, but there's a little of it there. Only in, only in our snicket old lace. <laughs> oh yeah. In that. True. True. Yeah. Not, not exactly as subtlest performance. No, but I, I, I happen to like it. I think yeah. it gets, I'm, it's a little exhausting in the third act uh, by the time you get to the third act because it doesn't stop. Right. You really don't get, Caprick just jams it into fourth gear and keeps it there. Uh, and he hated that performance because he thought he was over the top. He thought it was grossly over the top. I kind of like it gently, just as an example of technique and style because he's really, he's doing double and triple takes and he's staring at the camera and he's whinnying and he's doing anything. He's doing anything and everything in his repertoire. And it's dazzling. It's just dazzling because his repertoire is so huge. Well, it's interesting. That brings up another thing. You quote him saying, uh, this is actually his first interview back in 1930, some obscure trade paper. Uh And he says that, you know, Brits basically want to be well-bred people on stage. And that's why there's a lot of sort of drawing room comedies where everyone Uh gets to be a bit posh. Uh And he he basically says Americans like something they can tear into. Uh-huh. And that really is, I think, the distinction between him and other English actors is they had come out of that tradition and were still somewhat tied to it, even when they were playing comedy. Sure. And he he wasn't out of that tradition. And maybe he felt a little insecure about that, a little inadequate next to, you know, the the, the Coleman's and Olivier's and whomever. Uh-huh. Well, he brought he brought a little touch of the gutter with him, you know, as an actor. And, and it be, that became... Uh, when he has to play straight, when he has to play dignified in something like that, well, the uh, horrible Cole Porter movie, Night <laughs> yeah. and Day, that's when he's really at sea. And and he, suddenly it's it's 1932 all over again. He doesn't know what to do because there's nothing he can project. He can't project wit. He can't project insouciance. He can't project energy. He's just basically doing lead ins and lead outs to other people singing the songs. Yeah. <laughs> and it's he's just he's he's becalmed. It's it's as distressing when the most distressing performance he probably ever had to give because it's he's suddenly being asked to slam it into reverse and go back to 1932 and 33 when no one knew what he could do. But yeah. now that we know what he can do, there's a terrible sense of why are they doing this to him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is really, to me, his his prime period um, where almost everything is just exceptional and he's kind of a perfect movie star in it. Holiday, Philadelphia right. Story, Only Angels His Girl have, Friday. His yeah. Girl Friday, Only Angels Have Wings, uh, Suspicion. I mean, it, it's just almost one good thing after another. There really are... It's an the, amazing run. It's an amazing run of films. Yeah, no I mean, there is the occasional in-name only. Uh, and at this point, he's still trying... He may, he's trying to stretch a bit as an actor. I mean, he does Penny Serenade, which is a tearjerker and pretty effective, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, he does None But the Lonely Heart, which is more in the order of a noble failure. Um, and I again, like it. He's, I like it. He's playing, a, again, a Cockney character and, uh-huh. and, and not entirely reputable and, and all of that. I like it for the mood. I think it's 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 unusual because it it's a, has a mood of unrelieved futility, and sadness, and 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 missed opportunities. And I appreciate the strength of its convictions that uh, life is not always uh, go to the swift, and that some people just can't get to first base. They can't even get a walk. 
uh, it's unrelieved. It's unrelieved. And it's also made during World War II. And there's no pious uh, bullshit about the brotherhood of man and how we're all going to survive. No, we're not all going to survive. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And I mean, we've all sat through those movies, you know, with the planes going overhead and, and yeah. the little, the little, the little mini speech about the, the Western values will triumph in the end and all that. And Odette's Clifford Odette's isn't really having any of that. <laughs> and I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, uh, the uh, uh, the Jewish fatalism at the heart of it, I guess. <laughs> and I appreciate Grant's appreciation of it. Of course, it's an also it's also an ex- uh, it's also an experiment you never really repeat it uh, because I don't think he felt the grief was worth uh, the response. Uh, maybe he wanted an Oscar. Maybe he wanted to make a lot of money. Uh, the film lost a little money, but very little, really. It, it did okay for the kind of movie it is. It did quite well, actually. Uh, but it wasn't a huge hit, and he didn't get an Oscar. And I think I uh, I, I think he just felt that the, the 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 risk of exposure was not worth the return. Yeah. No, it seems like he opened himself up in a big way, and it didn't because get the whole him point, the, the whole co- the core relationship in the film is between him and his mother, and the the character uh, and, and his mother, played by Ethel Barrymore. And they keep failing each other and they keep failing each other for two hours yeah. at the end. At the end, they fail each other one last time. And that is in essence, I think what drew him to the part and why he wanted to play it because it's an emotional autobiography about his feelings of why did, why did my mother abandon me? And why did my father not tell her, tell me that uh, I had no choice in this matter or what? And ultimately it also is autobiographical in that he was never really able to come to grips with uh, any kind of communication with her because she wasn't all there. You know, a, a friend of his, you know, who was in the room with him, with Kirant and his mother three times said she was just kind of absent. She would occasionally say something, but sometimes she wouldn't respond to a direct question. And she didn't really appreciate all the things that Grant tried to do for her because she seemed to indicate that she thought he was trying to manipulate her for some ulterior motive. Actually, he was just trying to get her approval of him. Yeah. You know, thank you. Thank you for the love of gift. Thank you for the color TV. Thank you for the hamper from Harrods. No, she never, that didn't really enter her mind, you know. And it, he grew more and more frantic as he got older because. He had less and less time to 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 affect a, a rapprochement with her, and he never did really. He never did really, but he kept trying, and it was like this open wound that never healed, really. Yeah. Well, we seem to have segued into his personal life, so let's uh, switch to that a bit. Um, the interesting question that everyone is going to raise is: uh, so, him and Randolph Scott were they lovers or what? And I think you kind of established that it was the early 30s and everyone's gorgeous and they're drinking a lot and everybody's kind of having sex with everybody at that point. But the grand... Yeah, nothing much has changed. Yeah. I have to tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People are still drinking a lot. This The last year they're drinking more than usual. Exactly. Um, and it's, 
you know, as, as you say, I mean, and really show, his various marriages do not suggest someone who is merely dabbling in something for appearance's sake. Uh, he was very no, much I after think a gay, some... I think a gay man gets married once for cover. Right. And also, it's like you you see what he he's kind of hunting for something else in each of his marriages. Right. Yeah, um, they're all different. They're all completely different people. Because he was looking to somehow get a sense of completion in his life. So he was looking for someone that had absolutely no re- relationship to who he was as a person. He wasn't looking for his his mirror image. He was looking for something completely different in order to complete himself. Uh, and and uh, ultimately, he found her uh, at the end of his life, you know. And he found her in the in, in the same way that Charlie Chaplin found his ideal mate, or Henry Fonda found his ideal mate, because they were very difficult men. And they basically needed one woman to play all the different parts that a woman can play for a man. The mother, the wife, the mistress, the lover, uh, the foreman, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, the ramrod, someone, someone that will get the, you know, the house remodeling done and organize your life for you. So they were they were all looking for that one woman and instead of uh, a wife who could be one or two of those things, he finally found someone that could be all those things. Which is exactly what he wanted, and also someone who whose sole focus was him. They right. all, both Fonda and Chaplin and uh, uh, Grant, all had that in common. Basically, what they wanted was someone to focus all their attention on them, and that made them happy, and that made them stop looking around for the next girl or the next wife. I mean, the one that really struck me as as just odd. And almost like a royal marriage of sorts is with Barbara Hutton, who has more money yeah. money than God, and he's the most yeah. handsome handsome man on earth. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if ever two not quite real people <laughs> hooked up, that seems to be them. In a funny sort of way, I think that he married her because she was more screwed up than he was, and and she was sort of the only reclamation project he ever undertook on somebody else. Cary Grant's reclamation project throughout his life was Cary Grant because uh, he was trying to assimilate all these disparate, these warring halves of his personality and all the sh- broken shards of his childhood and trying to clean it up emotionally. And I think in the Barbara Hutton, he th- he found someone he thought he might be able to help because she was a train wreck. She was a train wreck in a completely different way than he was because she had no concept of reality, whereas his concept of reality was all consuming and very destructive. And she had absolutely no concept of reality because she'd been uh, 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 had uh, the the insulation of her money from the day she was born. And he didn't he wasn't interested in her money. He was interested in her. Uh, So it was an interesting it was an interesting, uh, uh, weird, badly balanced relationship. And I don't think it ever could have worked because I don't I think she was. uh, uh, uninterested in being anything other than what she was, whereas Cary Grant was very interested in being something other than what he felt he was. So there was an essential imbalance in what they each wanted from each other. Well, I think it's interesting, too, that one of his close friends was Howard Hughes. I mean, again, right. someone with more money than God and absolute power. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but the difference, see, his, two, his, two, his three closest friends were Hughes, Irene Mayer Selznick, and Clifford Odets. Now, there's no common thread there. Clifford Odets was like Grant in that they were both fundamentally dissatisfied with themselves. And nothing they did professionally 
really closed uh, their feelings of I'm doing something wrong. Uh, Irene Mayer Selznick never doubted her own uh, uh, worth for a Minnesota minute. I just it never occurred to her right. that uh, she was anything other than the absolute arbiter of of everybody and everything in Hollywood, you know, or New York, uh, for that matter, after she moved to New York. Uh, so there was really no commonality between these. And Hughes was similar to Barbara Hutton in that he was absolutely insulated by money his entire life. Yeah. You know, which enabled him to be, get crazier and crazier and crazier until he, you know, died on an airplane with, you know, six inch fingernails. Right. <laughs> uh, so even with his best friends, he's he's searching for something to complete him because they're not alike at all. They're totally unlike unlike each other. And the person he was closest to for the longest time uh, would have been Clifford Odets, I think, on an emotional level, because Irene Mayer Selznick divorced David and moved to New York and spent the rest of her life in New York. Uh, and Grant, you know, didn't spend that much time in New York. Once in a while, he'd go if he had business to transact, but he was not a New Yorker by any stretch of the imagination. So they were separated, whereas he and Odette's were, were, were close until Odette's death. And then, of course, Hughes got nuttier and nuttier, and he cut off all contact uh, except for the Mormon Mafia. So I don't know. I don't know that Grant actually saw much of Hughes for uh, uh, the last 15 years of Hughes' life. Right. That's what I was wondering. It's like at some point that has to have just you know, dribbled out. They might've talked on the phone. That's conceivable. True. True. Yeah. Um, so here's Grant post-war period comes. I mean, I think you would probably agree that one of his top performances of all time, notorious, Oh yeah. Exactly. It's one of my two or three favorites. Yeah. And it's exactly the sort of thing that kind of flew over critics heads at the time i mean to me uh-huh. that's his that should be his oscar-winning performance because he manages to do that charming bastard thing and the you know the cold so self-loathing thing uh-huh. so powerfully but it's a slick hitchcock thriller so nobody sees time. that you know it's, it makes it impossible for them to see that this is a better performance than i don't know what one what would have won the Oscar? I guess Frederick March. I think was, Ron, Ronald Coleman won it that year. Ronald Coleman or Frederick March, I think. Yeah, I can't argue with Frederick March in best years of our lives. But, no, it's uh, a beautiful performance. It's but it's, it at least should, it should have been nominated, damn it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, he's also fantastically rich at this point. He, you know, he was a um, free agent early on. Then he gets into getting a piece of the action, producing his own, all those things through the 50s. Um, at one point, you cite him as being, I, I don't know if I believe he was the richest in terms of money in the bank, but making the most money at that point, you know, somewhere in the in the Bob Hope, Gene Autry ballpark anyway. Well, see, but they're different in that those guys invested. Right. Grant didn't invest. Grant invested in Grant. Uh, you know, Bob Hope bought land. Gene Autry bought radio stations and TV stations and baseball teams. Well, he. The Angels were his, his, his expansion team. Uh, but they I'm sure they both had a lot more money than Cary Grant did. Because Cary Grant, I don't I I I'm not at all sure would trust investments on a wide level. I'm sure he would put some money in blue chips, you know, uh, I mean, things that returned, you know, a steady four percent a year or something. But I don't know that he would take a fly tie up a lot of a lot of capital on land. That would that would seem to me to be out of seriously out of character. Because the payoff on land is, you know, 10 and 20 years in the future. And how, how he would be too conscious of all the things that could go wrong in 10 or 20 years. Do you know what I'm paying to have this grass mowed? Yeah, right, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. yeah. Um, 
But it's interesting. He's kind of a, you know, he's top of the world in Hollywood. He's producing these things. He's having hit after hit. A lot of them are not very good movies into the 50s. They're kind of, you know, he makes a lot of comedies where he has kids, which seems Mm -hmm. really interesting projection. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe in some ways he's defending himself against, you know, well, he's too old for her in this Mm -hmm. movie. Uh, You know, there's so many of the... There are an awful lot of love in the afternoons being made in the fifties with Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn made a career out of, of shacking up with uh, leading men who were twenty-five and thirty years older than yeah. she was, and in some cases looked like forty or fifty years older. Than right? She. No, I, I can't stand Love in the Afternoon because Cooper. Oh, I don't mind Love in the Afternoon because it's actually a very good movie. Sabrina creeps me out. Yeah, Sabrina too. Yeah, Sabrina yeah. creeps me out because Bogart looks like he's about to collapse. He looks like he's at death's door. And and it just it, it, I, even in 1953, it seems to me that people would have gone. Uh, he's going to die on their honeymoon. It just it just it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he, he, whereas Cooper at least has this elegance, has his innate elegance and and grace as an actor, you know. And he doesn't look particularly good, but he acts beautifully, and he's still funny, and his timing is intact. Bogart just looks like he wants to get to the bar and, <laughs> yeah. and he doesn't really look interested in Audrey Hepburn at all. You know, yeah. it's, he's, he's, he's earning, he's getting his paycheck. That's what he's thinking about. And it's very clear. Uh, whereas Cooper is in, is invested in the movie and that makes a big difference. And it gives it a, like a May, uh, a May, November yeah. <laughs> vibe yeah. as yeah. opposed to May, September vibe. This is, yeah. this is a May, November vibe. Get, hurry, get with, get that honeymoon in a hurry. Cause yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, no. And it, and it's, uh, it's interesting. Bogart gets one of the roles that uh, Grant was pursued for and did not ever take, which was barefoot Contessa. Right, 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 right. Not a good movie. Not a good movie. I, I have, I have trouble uh, uh, taking Joe Mankiewicz as seriously as Joe Mankiewicz took Joe Mankiewicz because they, the, everybody's way too articulate and the, the movies go on forever. And so do the scenes, as a matter of fact, after, after, yeah, I think all about Eve was the worst thing that ever happened to him. Cause he, 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 he became convinced he was some sort of Hollywood version of Congreve and uh, uh, George S. Kaufman. Yeah. That worked once, but yeah. yeah but not uh, over and over. Um, yeah, so, I mean, when you look at the the Grant films, I mean, other than the Hitchcocks and mm-hmm. um, Affair to Remember, which you, you describe accurately in terms of how it relates to its original love affair. Right. Uh, and, you know, just kind of shows the 50s tendency to do everything bigger and longer and not quite mm-hmm. as, as much fun. Yeah. Um, you know, they're not that many good films, and he seems... I like Indiscreet. I like Indiscreet a lot. I think Indiscreet works very well, because I'm a big Ingrid Bergman fan, and I like... She has a way of slowing him down. She sets the pace of... of uh, she determines the pace with Grant. Most times, Grant determines the rhythm. Hello. Good morning. morning. How did you sleep? Fine. And you? Fine. What are you doing? I'm considering getting up. It seems to me that Bergman, Bergman has a weird effect on Grant where she forces him to be more deliberate as an actor, you know, 
he works to her rhythm rather than the leading lady working to his rhythm. And I like that. I also think it's a nice idea. Uh, a guy who pretends to be married in order to uh, already married so he can just have affairs. Uh, and a woman who's attracted by that until she's not. Yeah. I think that's a really good idea. And the fact that they're both 50-ish, you know, uh, gives it also an interesting autumnal vibe. Because let's face it, at a certain point, you're no longer uh, terribly uh, uh, hot on the market. You know? <laughs> and this and this could be the last shot for both of them. And it's well-directed. Stanley Donnan did a good job with it. I like that's the uh, of the pictures Grant produced. That's the only one I, I I actually like. Most of them are just straight commercial entries. Right. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, talking about his friends kind of revealing um, something about him. And he's pretty good friends with Harold Lloyd. And mm-hmm. it, to me, he kind of takes on a similar thing where Harold Lloyd never quite retired, but he would kind of make a movie every five or ten years to see if people had forgotten him yet, and eventually they had. And they had. And they had. No, Lloyd did not want to retire. It just sort of, he, he, in the same way that Mary Pickford or Douglas Fairbanks didn't want to retire, I don't think. Well, maybe Fairbanks did, but certainly Pickford didn't. But the financial returns in their pictures made it inevitable because they simply... You know, they, they they weren't going to keep making movies until they, they were broke. <laughs> there, there was just there was no way the audience had left had moved on. Uh, so at some point you do, you just have to face the music and, and Lloyd faced the music. But he wanted to be able to reissue a picture like Chaplin could reissue a picture and still make some money. Uh, he wanted to be able to be in, still in demand, maybe for character part or something, you know, and it didn't really happen. It didn't really happen. Well, you have to actually go play character parts to be in demand for character parts. You know, if, well, yeah, if, but... if he was like an executive suite or something as a marketing uh-huh. guy or whatever, or if he'd taken Rudy Valley's role in, you know, how to succeed in business, uh-huh. then he would be a character player, but he never right. was. No, no. Although he could have. I mean, in a sense, Sin of Harold Diddlebach is a character part. Yeah. And he's actually rather good at it. He, he, he can act. He, he's a good actor. He's not just a comic. He's a good actor. Uh, the film goes off in a different direction, but those early scenes, you know, where he's this tired, tired, washed up middle-aged guy are very well played, very well played. But see, that's what Grant didn't want to happen to him. He didn't want to hang around after nobody wanted to invite him to the party. He wanted to leave the party while it was still, uh, uh, going on and not people looking at their watches going, Oh dear God, is he still here? You know, <laughs> yeah. And he did. He he retired at sixty-two. He retired at sixty-two, and I think it were those were the best years of his life after he retired. I, I because the pressure was off, because he no longer had to worry about being discovered uh, or exposed as uh, anything other than than what he was, and he could relax and be Archie Leach if he felt like being Archie Leach. And when he wanted to, he could flip on Cary Grant and be Cary Grant. Uh, but I think there was always in the back of his mind, dear God, what, what if, uh, what if, uh, uh, the clock strikes 12 and the, uh, the carriage turns into a pumpkin, you know, what if somehow or another, they understand I'm just Archie from Bristol. And he played with that idea by you doing all the in jokes about Archie Leach, you know, uh, in his girl Friday and, you know, a couple other movies. Uh, so he, he was, he had a sense of humor about it, but at the same time, I think I think it was I think that was that was the ultimate horror for him, you know. If he had to go back to somehow, and but I think that's that's not unusual. I think anybody that comes from that kind of a lower middle class or or poor environment uh, is terribly worried about money. 
they're going to be terribly worried about uh, not being as smooth or as sophisticated as they as they become and maybe being exposed as an imposter. I mean, those are perfectly normal. I mean, it, it, what's the line in the in at three o'clock in the morning? Everybody thinks they're passing, you know, uh, and that's that's probably true. That's probably true, except I think it was more of a problem for him than it was for most people. Yeah. Well, and I think it, you see it in a lot of actors that they're, you know, they're convinced the good times are about to stop and they're going to be waiting tables again. And actually, you know, I don't think you mentioned it, but, you know, one of his very minor 30s movies, Wedding Present, has uh-huh. Charles Ray in a bit in it. He had been a big star in like 1922 or so. Oh, boy. And sure, there boy. he's playing, yeah. you know. Just and, Grant would have kn- and Grant would have known that. And Grant yeah. would have known that. Because you know, he would have seen Charles Ray in movies. Yeah. So, the, you know, yeah, not not a theoretical matter. No, 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 no. I mean, and, you know, uh, people Grant worked with, you know, Esther Ralston and uh, Grant worked with a lot of people on the way, uh, you know, when he was just a young actor at Paramount. And 10 years later, you know, they're they're doing extra work for, you know, $10 a day and glad to get it and glad to get it. Uh, that's the that's the nature of show business. That's the nature of the theater, too. Uh, and I think that he wanted to gird himself against that possibility. So when he found something that worked for him, he deviated from it only for exceptional people or exceptional scripts. Well, that's actually, that's a good point about him too. Is I mean, even as Paramount didn't know what to do with him, he was really fighting for, to work with top people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, appreciated that. There are a few times he'd work with somebody and he'd push him around on the set. Sidney Sheldon, of all people, future potboiler bestseller writer. He needed to be pushed around. Him. Yeah. <laughs> There's a reason he didn't direct much more. Right. Um, there is. Yeah. By and large, he, you know, he wanted to surround himself with top talent and sure. let them get the most out of him at the same time as he was very careful about what parts he took and turned down opportunities that would have gotten more out of him, but would have taken him out of his comfort zone. Sure. I, I think that's essentially why he would turn down a star is born, you know, the Judy Garland star is born because uh, I mean, the money was there and, and to get Jack Warner to Andy up for Cary Grant was difficult because uh, Jack, especially in 1954, because you know, that's not a great year, a great period for the movie industry. Uh, after television lands, uh, but they were going to Andy up for Cary Grant and he turned it down and it's a good script, but in a funny sort of way, it's her movie, you know, and in a, it, whereas in the original with Janet Gaynor and Frederick March, there's an equivalence, but there's no getting away from the fact that uh, it's Judy Garland's movie in the remake as it has continued to be every succeeding version uh (laughs) as time has gone on it's it's, because it's easy to slant it that way and because like we've all seen the movie and we all know he's going to kill himself uh because he's a hopeless alcoholic so uh let's let's go with the close-ups of the girl uh and maybe he sensed that that it was going to be uh slanted slightly towards towards the female lead it's a judy garland Uh, musical it is. It, she's got all the numbers, you yeah. know, and he stands there and appreciate. And, you know, James Mason has to stand there and be appreciative. And James Mason's wonderful and he's even sexy. Uh, uh, but it would have been a different movie, probably a better one and a more exciting one with Cary Grant. It's not that I don't like James Mason. I'm crazy about James Mason. I mean, he never gave a bad performance that I've seen. I haven't seen everything, but I've seen 40 or 50 pictures and he's always excellent. Uh, uh, but he's not, he doesn't. He didn't have the leverage in that picture 
that the star had because the producer was her husband and because it was her big comeback movie. And Jack Warner, that's what that's what Jack Warner had, had pushed his chips on, that Judy Garland was ripe for a comeback and the audience would welcome her back with both arms. Well, maybe not. But that was the plan. That was the plan. And the, the, Cary Grant would have been insurance in a way that James Mason was not insurance. All right. So Cary Grant, you said why you wrote about him, um, cause mm-hmm. he's one of those stars who last to this day, you could still say to somebody, Oh, you look as good as Cary Grant. And it's not going to be this weirdly anachronistic right. thing. Right. Like say, Oh, you look as good as Adolf Manjou. God, <laughs> you, you remind me of Tyrone power. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Cary Grant, what does he mean today? I think he's kind of an avatar of male elegance uh, for anybody that sees him. He's absolutely centered. He's a centered actor. He's centered in his presentation. Uh, You feel, and he's not a clothes horse in the sense that it's all about the tuxedo. You just feel that this is a man who's composed in his own life, in his own being. Which is ironic because those are not dis- those are not qualities that you actually use when describing Cary Grant off screen. He was pettish. He was nervous. Uh, he was anxious. He was basically neurotic, uh, like a lot of people are, like a lot of actors are. Uh, but not when he presented himself on screen. Not when he presented himself on screen. He was a center of gravity. And I think in a drama, in comedy, he was a whirling dervish. But... That's, I think, what draws people to him is that quality of centeredness uh, in the, the, that is in composure. I think that's what is attractive to both men and women, to both men and women about Cary Grant, because they, they, sense, they, they sense that he's reliable, that he knows who he is, that he's in charge on a psychological and emotional level, you know? And that's quite a trick for a guy who was as nervous as he was. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the moment I meet an attractive woman, I have to start pretending I've no desire to make love to her. What makes you think you have to conceal it? She might find the idea objectionable. Then again, she might not. Scott Iman's Cary Grant, A Brilliant Disguise, comes out October 20th from Simon & Schuster. There will be links in the show post at nitrateville.com. If you have a particular area of old movies you love, there's probably a book at the beginning of it that you devoured as a kid even before you could see those films. In fact, if you want to make a movie buff out of a favorite nephew or niece, a book is the best way to do it. And one of the best series for that job right now is the series of TCM-branded books from Running Press, 
which recruit top historians to offer accessible intros and histories for their areas, aimed at all ages. I spoke with Richard Berrios about his TCM Musicals book a couple of years ago. And now we welcome back David J. Skull, who knows horror movies like Professor Van Helsing knew the ways of the undead, to talk about Fright Favorites, 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond, out now. I started by asking him how the process with TCM and Running Press works. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me again. Usually I uh, approach publishers. Uh, this time, uh, Turner Classic Movies and Running Press approached me, and they had had um, quite a success with a, um, a book about Christmas-themed movies. And uh, would I be interested in doing something like that for Halloween? And uh, I've also, I'm also a Halloween historian as well as a horror film historian. And uh, we started batting ideas back and forth. And it became apparent we couldn't do exactly the same thing as the Christmas book because there aren't as many movies that are good movies that uh, deal with the holiday itself and any book um, uh, that tried to do that would be, be swamped by the John Carpenter franchise. <laughs> we said, okay, let's do something for Halloween. And uh, so the title got changed from Halloween favorites to fright favorites, 31 movies to haunt your Halloween and beyond, uh, which was a nice marketing decision on their part because it uh, doesn't, it extends the shelf life considerably. And it sounded great. 31 films, you know, 31 is the magic word, uh, magic number. And then uh, suddenly realized there were way too many films that we wanted to deal with somehow. So I said, well, what if we do, uh, we cheat a little bit and put an alternate. Uh, if you like this, you may also like this, uh, which gave us an excuse to spotlight uh, 62 films and talk about many others in the, you know, in the text. And um, it was, you know, it's a vast field and we had to rule out the idea that this is some kind of uh, definitive encyclopedia because um, there was a time when you could have done something like that in a few hundred pages. Um, not anymore because horror movies have moved from, you know, the periphery, uh, the, the B pictures, the C pictures and, and, and less, to now all the biggest blockbusters in Hollywood, the big summer hits, almost always have some element of the fantastic or the frightening and are driven by special effects and creatures. And, and, um, and it's just moved from the periphery to the center. One of the reasons I started writing these books is that back, you know, even in the uh, 70s and 80s, it was difficult to find in the indexes to standard, you know, cinema histories, names like uh, Todd Browning or James Whale, and uh, they still, pop culture still was not uh, taken seriously. It has since made a lot of inroads into, uh, into academic discourse. And uh, so I came up with a preliminary list and then we had to bat it around because as you might imagine, Turner Classic Movies is full of people who know a lot about movies. And uh, my publisher, Running Press, uh, in, so they're down in Atlanta, and my publisher's in Philadelphia, and we uh, had many conference calls, but um, it, it was all very friendly, and we made compromises, and, and um, I, I hope with the idea that uh, there will be a follow-up to this. It seems to be doing 
very well, and I've already got some ideas for freight favorites too. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you, the way you talk about uh, horror's perception in the critical community. Um, it really, you see in the course of the book how it become it goes, and also Halloween. You talk about this as well. The whole idea of Halloween, as well as horror being a genre, develop over the course of pretty much the last century. We're almost exactly a century out from Nosferatu, the first right. of the book. So, you know, uh, horror movies. Uh, fantasy and science fiction they're they're all um especially in the low budget ones are never lose money for uh, <laughs> a studio or a distributor and it's why so many you know important filmmakers have gotten their their start doing these kinds of um these kinds of things and uh and return to them later inevitably in their careers to uh, pay homage yes this is this is not a definitive complete book um, try to make it as broad as possible and, and showcase, you know, representative samplings of the kind of uh, the variety of things you see in the, in the field. And Turner was also uh, interested in, uh, you know, reaching a uh, family demographic as well. So we have a number of uh, horror comedies and, and uh, things you uh, definitely want to show the kids and uh, there are a few you definitely do not show the kids. <laughs> well, and that's the other interesting thing too, to me is, I mean, I'm the, you know, similar generation that Frankenstein and Dracula and all those guys were my buddies as a kid. Now we're so far from that. And, you know, I think I'm not, I don't know about you, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the younger people who may get this book, uh, for Halloween or Christmas or something. I mean, The Exorcist is an old, old movie at this point. You know, even the original Halloween is an old movie that has this young person who is now, you know, well-known as a lady with gray hair in it. So, uh, you know, how do you get, how do you win those people over to the idea of watching, you know, Frankenstein lumber around when they, you know, they know him mainly from a breakfast cereal and things like that. Well, it's sometimes a stretch. You know, the younger generation is not going to be um, frightened by these things. I, I, you know, generally, I think horror movies um, are a way we process things in the world we're really scared about but don't want to look at too directly. And so part of the problem with the younger generation going back and looking at these films, they, they don't, uh, they didn't experience the context. They didn't experience Cold War paranoia. They didn't experience the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, they didn't experience, uh, you know, the worst of the AIDS epidemic. And all of these uh, big cultural catastrophes that tend to set in motion identifiable patterns in scary entertainment. Some of, some of my, you know, my students, I've, I've taught courses based on my books at some, uh, uh, a number of schools and guest lectured at uh, dozens and dozens of others. And um, they... Um, they weren't there, you know, at the uh, at the point of origin, but many of them become very um, encyclopedic in their own way and their own uh, knowledge of uh, um, the genres. But they they're, they're they're always things you're going to that are not going to quite line up. Um, we were talking about uh, Dracula in one class, and uh, um, my students uh, were so young. That, and this is 10 years ago, my students were so young that none of them could even remember 
the Coppola Dracula when it first right. came out. <laughs> it's something if they caught up on, uh, you know, on, on DVD or Blu-ray later. And uh, so here they are meeting, you know, Bela Lugosi for the first time. And, it's, and I, this class um, was almost entirely women, which was very interesting because monster movies used to be, uh, it was a boy thing. It was a guy thing. And um, there, there was always some tomboy at the uh, periphery of your, your monster fan club. But um, this, this, this was intriguing uh, that uh, women found this uh, 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 subject worth uh, you know, diving into. And I uh, asked them, I said, well, you know, we keep reading, that, at least in many of the books, that uh, you know, Lugosi was quite a... Uh, a matinee idol, and women found him very, very sexy. And uh, uh, what do you think? Uh, is Lugosi's Dracula a romantic figure for you? And to a woman, they all made a face and said, "You know." <laughs> yeah, he's a European gigolo with slick back hair, and it's just such a you know a stylization about those old. Uh, uh, films and, and, the, and the methods of acting and, 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 and the diction and everything else that's quite, quite different than, than uh, recent generations have, uh, uh, have grown up with. It's, all, it's almost like a foreign language. And, uh, but uh, nonetheless, you know, they, they appreciated uh, um, um, uh, Lugosi. You know, they thought he, he is unforgettable. He, he put a stamp on that character that no other actor has. Uh, the other thing that's interesting about, you know, the, those classic uh, monsters, Dracula and Frankenstein, is that they, they came out in 1931 at the very beginning of the talkies. And they've got one foot in the silent era. They are largely pantomime, silent performances. Lugosi's got that voice and, and some great dialogue, but it doesn't have a lot of dialogue. And um, so I think they, they, they are these... Um, visual um, icons that haunt our imaginations as, uh, you know, as much as anything else. And we, um, um, imagery is very important in, 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 in horror. Uh, Dracula, in fact, was released in a silent version with intertitle uh, for audience because so many theaters, especially, you know, out in the sticks, didn't, uh, weren't wired for sound in 1931. Well, and I think, you know, it's it, maybe it's because of the films, uh, but we kind of associate horror as more effective when it has a little cinematic creakiness to it. I think it's one of the things that you see in later films like Night of the Living Dead or Carnival of Souls. The lack of budget, the lack of obvious studio resources makes them more real. Yeah, it does. And, you know, the the um, uh, there's something about... You know, in the history of Gothic literature and Gothic entertainment and, and, and plays and operas, and uh, they're always rooted in the ancient past. So there is, it is uh, somewhat appropriate that uh, um, the, these older films may be taking on a, a certain unexpected patina because they, it is an unfamiliar world that's a lot like ours, but, but uh, clearly a lot more primitive in terms of the, the, the technological settings and background. So is, are there any films that just don't go over when you try and show them to, to younger people? I wonder about like the Val Luton films, if there's just not enough going on in those 
by modern slasher standards to win anybody over? No, audiences are, uh, younger audiences, uh, my classroom audiences are usually fairly impressed by, you know, by Luton. Um, Cat People holds up very, very well. It was one of the first, you know, truly psychosexual horror movies in which a psychiatrist gets his, gets his comeuppance or not believing. And um, the, no, kids today, uh, younger kids than my students know the, uh, how effective it is, you know, to tell scary stories without showing anything. I mean, this is why horror has always been, you know, great for radio drama. Uh, and the films of Val Luton and uh, stories told around a campfire. And uh, there, there is horror, you know, it has its uh, claws back uh, always in the oral tradition of uh, uh, folklore, where you're told a story, but you add something to it, you know, with the telling. And every te uh, reteller adds something of their own to it. and um, and this keeps folklorists uh, very busy tracking down all the, you know, the variations on classic uh, legends and fairy tales. Uh, but it's why they stay alive. And uh, the movies are just like that. I used to complain all the time that, oh, nobody's giving Bram Stoker his, his due. And why don't they just film it the way he wrote it? And uh, now I've, I've just come full circle on that because... It is the transformations that keep uh, Dracula and other monsters alive, and um, and if we were too uh, too respectful and too cautious, um, uh, we probably wouldn't be seeing uh, uh, yet another uh, version of Frankenstein or Dracula or Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. They um, they they need to adapt. They need to breathe. They need you know, space to grow. And uh, sometimes there are real misfires, but it keeps the original story, you know, out there in people's, at least in the back of people's minds. And, uh, you know, and, and, this, and for people who are, you know, wedded to, uh, to the literary form, uh, the book is always there. You can always go back and that's all, often uh, told to modern novelists and writers when a very bad movie is made of one of their books. Well, you still have the book, but uh, it is, um, it, it's fascinating how something like, like Dracula or, or Frankenstein, they have their roots in ancient, ancient legends and superstitions. They achieved a kind of static, uh, brief, static form briefly, you know, in, on the printed page. But as soon as uh, the age of mass media came along, we were off and running with all the old uh, conventions and traditions of folklore. Well, yeah, I always think of uh, the Hammer version of Dracula, the horror of Dracula from 58. You know, we by that point, how many versions had I seen where Jonathan Harker goes to, uh, you know, to sell real estate to Dracula and so on. And this one sets it up that way. And then you hear him reading his letter and he says, and that's why I've come to Castle Dracula to kill Dracula. And it's like, oh yeah. man, we're off to the races now. It's, a, it's amazing how uh, many, uh, how, how clever people have been with um, 
you know, you wonder if is it a deficiency in Stoker's storytelling and and um, the the characterization of his uh, his his original on paper cast that uh, people you know feel they have to correct, but uh, unlike other you know famous novels, um, adapters really feel free to uh, to do anything with it and just throw the the, the characters and uh, plot elements into a mix master and uh, <laughs> the character yeah. names and sometimes is Lucy and sometimes Lucy is Nina and Harker is Renfield and, and vice versa. I, I love the, um, the, the, the recent Netflix uh, version that Mark Gatiss was, was behind. And uh, he did some very, very clever uh, 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 improvements on the, you know, Story and um, and I think that that has to be that's not anything to sneer at that's that's part of the fun and when people ask, what's your favorite uh, movie version of Dracula I said well it doesn't exist because it would be be a very intricate uh, uh, editing together a big mashup of all the uh, the best moments from the every uh, version of the uh, thing that's been filmed. And uh, I think it would be just just lovely letting you know one, uh, one having a conversation between characters, one character from one movie and finished by uh, you know somebody in another one, like ping pong back and forth. Right. Um, <laughs> and that would do justice to the whole Dracula delirium. And uh, my my skills with video editing are pretty uh, rudimentary at this point. And but maybe some somebody will uh, love to do a delirious uh, homage to the whole uh, cinematic Dracula phenomenon. You know, as you say, horror has been so popular in recent years. There's just been so much of it. A lot of times I hear fans of classic horror sort of lamenting the state of it. Um, but I have to say, you know, like looking at the last two films mentioned, you do a chapter on Get Out and a sidebar on Hereditary. And... I find both of those really kind of encouraging, not only because they're well-made films, but they're clearly in conversation with the genre. Uh, Get Out was a brain transference movie, which, you know, we, we all know that from Bugs Bunny, if anything, uh, right. taken to very interesting sociological ends. And then Hereditary, I kind of thought as I watched it was, it's kind of like a take on a lot of classic horror films like Rosemary's Baby, but it doesn't tell you which one it is for a long time. You're sort of waiting for the clues to drop in to tell you which, you know, which subgenre of horror are we really in here. So And yes, and this is the one you probably don't want to take the kids to. Yeah. That's for sure. Um, especially if anybody has a peanut allergy. There's no lack of uh, of, of, of talent and imagination. And there really aren't all that many building blocks, you know, for horror movies. There are certain kinds of blocks. There are certain kinds of characters. And it, the, uh, the achievement comes in the, the skillful, you know, manipulation and recombination of them, um, of them all. And, but I think, you know, uh, you know, the time we're living in is a very, very paranoid one. And I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, uh, a lot more movies with demonized outsiders and and strange contagions and and uh, you know it's all there in in plain view. It's not it's not a it's not really much of a secret code. 
but uh, we just don't like to process it too directly. And somehow it's easier to um, put away in our minds uh, via a monster mask. You know, it gets back to the you know ancient ideas about uh, catharsis. You know, as being you know, the, the the purpose. You know, of theater and and of uh, tragedy, especially. And um, I don't know how long the catharsis lasts, but you know, with horror movies, it it at least gets us through the night. Yeah. <laughs> people ask me why do people like to be scared, and I say, well, you probably like to be scared. You, you what? like to go on roller coasters uh, and they usually do <laughs> see and look look what happens people are screaming their heads off for the whole ride and then watch them come down the ramp at the end they are laughing they are refreshed and renewed uh and audiences coming out of horror movies uh, are very very often the same there's a reason horror comedy is so so effective uh laughing and screaming are very similar physiological responses. They're both ways we have of letting go of tension, you know, in, in the body. So here we are with a real life horror out there in the form of uh, COVID-19. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're not going around, uh, you know, giving talks at bookstores and things like that. How do you promote a horror book in the middle of a real life horror? Usually at this time of the year, I am on the road. My Octobers, I am in perpetual motion, going from city to city and college town to college town and at horror convention to horror convention and uh, signing books and giving lectures and, and doing uh, media things. And this year, it's all very different. So those, um, those bookstores aren't out there with uh, asking me to come with, <laughs> with open arms. And uh, so I'm doing it all virtually and uh, podcasts have become a big part of it this year. So I'm glad podcasts have, yeah. uh, have evolved because uh, in this, in the age of Trump, uh, it's been impossible. <laughs> it's been impossible to get booked on e even public radio stations that used to, you know, always uh, cover. I, I, Halloween, I would, uh, Typically, you know, get up very, very early, you know, uh, like, like 3 a.m. Pacific time for drive time um, East Coast and just do one, uh, you know, call in show after another after another. And it would start in the morning and it would go all the way to midnight. And that doesn't happen anymore. I saw that you do have a way for people to get an autographed copy, though. Well, I've designated, you know, the top uh, horror emporium in the United States, Dark Delicacies Books in Burbank, California. That's darkdel1l.com. And uh, I, they're right nearby, and they call me every week, and I go over and I sign and personalize inscriptions for people. And they are filling a record number of orders. But um, you can also, you know, I, and I'm really encouraging people to go to independent bookstores as much as possible these days. Uh, you know, Amazon and Barnes and Noble um, are very, very useful, and I use them all the time just to get my hands on things quickly. But uh, independent bookstores are really walking a walking a line right now, and so please uh, think of them. Don't forget them, and. Uh, and also remember that, uh, as you know, Tim Burton 
told us, uh, demonstrate to us, you know, Halloween is just an early excuse for Christmas. <laughs> so do you have anything new in the works right now? My Todd Browning book, uh, Dark Carnival, is coming out in a, uh, a limited um, coffee table book edition with uh, a massively increased number of illustrations, including Todd Browning's personal scrapbooks that nobody's had a look into uh, before and his photo albums and um, a lot of, lot of personal stuff I never thought I was ever going to see. But uh, it's going to be in this wonderful deluxe format sometime toward the beginning of the year. People never get tired of talking about freaks and browning. Yeah. <laughs> well, now we're getting, uh, I mean, I just got Outside the Law, which I already had on DVD, but we're getting, what is it, Drifting and White Tiger as well, coming from Kino. So. They're, 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 they're all fascinating. I have them all here. The uh, Browning's, he's a better um, silent director than he ever was in the talk. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Born, he was born for it, and Talkies slowed him down, and it's, it's uh, you know, both his big talkie success, successes, uh, you know, Dracula and Freaks, had bumpy developments, and nobody expected Dracula to even work. But he wore all the hats, you know, as a silent director. He could keep up a steady stream of, uh, of, 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 of patter with the, uh, with the actors, telling them what he wants. He, he could have uh, musicians on set. He could... Uh, uh, give them sudden directions and, and, uh, and improvise and, and all this kind of thing. But, you know, the coming of sound kind of, uh, and the, and the discrete technical um, crafts uh, kind of put an end to all that. And um, Browning, he, he like, he, he wrote the scripts. He helped design. He, he did, had his fingers in everything. And he really silent director, at least uh, a true, you know, auteur. But uh, he, hadn't, uh, he hadn't grown up in the theater. He had not grown up in, in the profession directing, you know, trained stage actors, uh, people who could talk. Um, he knew how to get performances out of, out of personalities. And uh, he sure got some great ones, especially out of Cheney. Well, and Pr Priscilla Dean, too. I mean, I've only seen Outside the Law. But, uh, you know, I just remember how modern she seems in that compared to your typical, you know, female star of a 1922 film. You know, she's, she's you oh, know, yeah. prefiguring noir as much as anybody. She, she's really quite, quite an amazing character. I never got to meet her. I did know some people who did because she, uh, during the years I was in New York, she apparently lived in New Jersey or somewhere nearby. And another writer friend who was not interested in in uh, you know Todd Browning, but uh, did go out and visit her. Uh, she was quite elderly at that time, and uh, but she never seems to have given a you know interview on the record about about Browning. And uh, it's sad. Yeah, when I did my I started my books, I was I didn't think that. Oh my God, this is the very limit of living human memory I'm playing with now, and. Right. Uh, I was able to, you know, hook up with uh, a number of people who were in their, who were very young, in their 20s or even younger, you know, early 30s and uh, even the 20s. And uh, so many of them were never approached by anybody. Yeah. And all, you know, it's sad enough that so, that like half of all the movies ever made uh, no longer exist, but that the people who made them 
uh, weren't given the chance to uh, uh, give you know career inter- uh, retrospective interviews. And, right. Uh, uh, Browning was just an ordinary character, and he uh, he resisted that. He didn't want to have his uh, his career pried into. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if somebody. Yeah, and people uh, close to him tried tried to get him. They, you know, would every once in a while bring out a tape recorder because he would tell stories all the time. He just wouldn't tell them to be written uh, down or recorded. Uh, and so, my God, what a story! So, my, I guess you know, biographical subjects are 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 good ones when there's some air of mystery that can't be dispelled <laughs> because you, it keeps you interested and in, in wondering, yeah. rejecting. And uh, the Browning is definitely, uh, definitely like that. David J. Skull's Fright Favorites 31 Movies to Haunt Your Halloween and Beyond is out now from TCM and Running Press. There will be links for it and for Dark Delicacies where you can order a signed copy in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Scott Iman and David J. Skull, and to Cita Zink at Running Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. And if you have a chance, remember to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice and leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. After all, I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders that depend upon me. Um, not actually true about the ex-wives. George Kaplan. Boy.